out of the two main responsibilities, the political responsibility to seek a solution to the Sino-Tibet conflict and also look after the welfare of the Tibetans in exile. These are the two prime responsibilities of the uh, Kashak under the Central Tibetan Administration. So with regards to the first one, that is uh, resolving the Sino-Tibet conflict through middleway policy, um, the first focus of the 16th cabinet is reopening Sino-Tibet dialogue. Now, if we have to resolve the Sino-Tibet conflict through peaceful means, then we have to realize that negotiation is the only way to go forward. And negotiation with whom? Negotiation with the Chinese government. And that is inescapable. Um, that is why the first step, as soon as the 16th cabinet came in, was to restructure the committee uh, uh, that concerns the Sino-Tibet uh, dialogue. So earlier it used to be a 17-member committee uh, which used to meet, uh, that used to meet from time to time in a year. Uh, we transformed that into a permanent strategy committee. And the reason why put, we put permanent is because we have the four secretaries who meet regularly, who are permanently employed in the Central Tibetan Administration. And these people are also responsible for different sections of the information management system. Therefore, the uh, security secretary responsible for information gathering is one of the members. The director of Tibet Policy Institute responsible for analyzing this information is also one of the members. The secretary of the Department of Information and International Relations responsible for dissemination of this information is the third member and the political secretary of the cabinet secretariat. So over and above these uh, four members, we have three advisors, one special invitee from the private office. And uh, in, during the last meeting, we have also included the Minister for Information, International Relations and Security also in the Permanent Strategy Committee. So all these meetings are chaired by the Sikong since this is the most important responsibility of the Kashak. So we will make every effort to reach out to the Chinese government as much as possible, but it will largely depend on how the Chinese government responds to our overtures. Mm. <clears throat> Therefore, uh, despite the uh, historical factors. We will have to have a positive mind uh, to believe that things will resolve. And as Buddhists, we believe in impermanence of things. So things will have to change in China. Uh, therefore, we always have a very positive outlook and I always make sure that to inform our people and supporters never to lose, lose hope. And this is something which His Holiness has always imbibed in us, never ever to lose hope. So we, will, we shall never lose hope and we will continue to uh, uh, explore possibilities for dialogue with China. But I don't want to talk more about this because as it stands, uh, there will certain details of what is going on or what is not going on may impact or harm uh, the ongoing processes. So you will get to know uh, when, as and when things happen. Uh, we have to reach out, as I mentioned, to the Chinese leadership. These are the true facts of life when it concerns Tibet.
if we have to find a solution to the Sino-Tibet conflict through peaceful means, then there is no other way than by talking with the Chinese leadership. Until such a time, then we have to reach out to the international community. There is no other choice. But there also, what we have to realize is that no nation will leave aside their national interests for the interests of Tibet. So if we understand these two realities, and this can happen <coughs> if and only if the national interests of a particular country aligns with the national interests of Tibet, then they can be a force that can be combined together um, in our uh, struggle for freedom. Um, now we have tried to adopt uh, a strategy that is a little bit uh, different from the earlier uh, administrations uh, in a sense that uh, we have decided to focus on the historical status of Tibet as an independent state to uh, create the right value for the middle way approach. Even though we stick by the middle way policy, um, we have changed our strategy to focus on the historical status of Tibet. Usually I say we have four reasons for doing this. <clears throat> One is, of course, we have to send a message to China. Unfortunately, the Western world or much of the rest of the world depend on China's history for Eastern history, which is mostly fabricated. Um, and China's propaganda, historical propaganda around the world have been uh, so uh, pervasive uh, that uh, many people might be thinking that Tibet must have been part of uh, PRC for very long or part of uh, China since time immemorial as Chinese government wants them to say. Um, so therefore, it's very important that we send this message to the Chinese government that Tibet historically was an independent state. Uh, whenever talks about dialogue happens, the Chinese government puts this precondition on His Holiness Dalai Lama that His Holiness should say that Tibet was part of China since time immemorial or since antiquity. But His Holiness always had a very smart answer for that. And His Holiness had said that I'm not a historian. Let's leave history to historians because it has to be based on facts. History cannot be changed uh, based on the whims and fancies of individuals and governments. It has to be based on facts. So what matters is the welfare or the future of the Tibetan people. So based on that position uh, and also of course, there are a lot of uh, historical books by Tibetans. But these days, when we travel around the world, we are not taking Tibetan historical books that that could be construed or maybe considered as propaganda by uh, others. Therefore, these days, we take these two books, one by Michael Van Wald van Prague and his partner, uh, Mick Baltius, called Tibet Brief 2020. So his approach, Michael's approach was to uh, to uh, study uh, the history of Tibet from a multi-angle, uh, dealing with some 70, 80 scholars uh, from many countries in Inner Asia uh, over seven, eight years. And he has come out with this book called 70, uh, the uh, Tibet Brief 2020. 
Now, in his book, what he tries to establish is whether it's Tibet's relationship with the Mongols. Uh, for Chinese, the Mongol rule over China is only that period between 1271 and 1368 when Kublai Khan invaded China and ruled China from Tibet, from China for about 100 years. But the Mongols existed even before that and even after that. Uh, so whether it's Tibet-Mongol relationship or the Tibet-Ming relationship between 1368 to 1644, when China was ruled by the Chinese themselves, the Han Chinese, we had three rulers in Tibet, the uh, Pamadrupa for about 100 years, Rimbumba for about 100 years, and Devasangwa for about 100 years, till 1642. Then the Mings were overthrown by the Qings, who are the Manchus. They are also not considered Chinese by Han Chinese. So the Manchus ruled China from 1644 to 1911. But Tibet was ruled by the fifth Dalai Lama from 1642, two years before the Qings overthrew the Mings in China. So what Michael tries to prove to this, through this book is that whether it's Tibet Mongol relationship of definition of state nation at that time or relations between neighbors or whether it's Tibet-Ming relationship or Tibet-Qing relationship, or as per international law today, Tibet has never been considered part of China. Now, there is another scholar called Professor Lao Han Tin. Uh, he uh, once told me that he has always been intrigued by this position of the Chinese government that keeps saying that Tibet is part of PRC. So he wondered as to why the government has to keep repeating this statement if Tibet is already a part of China, then why does Chinese government have to keep insisting that Tibet is part of uh, China? So after he finished his uh, 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 job as a professor, economics professor, uh, then he embarked on this uh, research. And his approach is completely different from Michael's. He looked at only Chinese imperial historical records from the Yuan to the uh, Mings and the Manchus, if you can consider the Mongols and Manchus also as Chinese. And he categorically proves that whether it's the Yuan dynasty or the Ming dynasty or the Qing dynasty, Imperial China has never considered Tibet as part of China. So with these two books, now we explain to governments that if you keep repeating the statement that Tibet is part of PRC, then you're going against international law because we have only one agreement with People's Republic of China, that is the 17-point agreement. Even this agreement was forced upon us under duress, under the threat of war, uh, 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 preceded by the uh, physical occupation of Chamdo in 1950, October 1950. And this agreement was forced upon us uh, in May 1951. So under international law, these agreements are not valid anymore because it's one-sided. It's an unequal agreement. It was forced upon the uh, weaker group. Uh, that is one reason we keep telling the international community that if you keep repeating the statement that Tibet is part of PRC, then you are going against international law. And if international law has to be implemented, why should Tibet be an exception? There. It has to be applied to everyone. The second point that we make is, on the one hand, countries say at the behest of the Chinese government that Tibet is part of PRC. 
On the other hand, they also say we support negotiation between the representative of His Holiness Dalai Lama and the Chinese government. And we tell these governments these two don't go together because China rules Tibet with an iron hand. And the whole international community keeps repeating the statement that China wanted them to repeat. And then where is the reason for China to come and talk to us? You're removing the very reason for negotiation. So it does not help us in any way. And the third uh, thing that we mention is, do you have any cases around this world where you invade another country and ask the whole international community to say that this is part of us? Even within China, you don't have cases where Chinese government say this is part of China or that is part of China. Why only Tibet? That is because the Chinese government knows that they have no legitimacy of their rule over Tibet. And that is why they are trying to seek this legitimacy from the international community. Now, my question to the international community is how many people have read Tibet's history? We lived on that plateau for centuries. And even then, when we remained isolated from the world, the world around us decided for us. Now, we, when we are in exile also, the world around us is deciding for us. Who is the international community to decide for us? What right has politicians and people at the helm of affairs to change history? History cannot be changed on the whims and fancies of individuals and governments. It has to be based on facts. <clears throat> so that is why we have taken this approach. And we believe that this message is sinking to the Chinese government. And the second message definitely is to the international community, and that is why we keep explaining about the historical status of Tibet to the international community. And the third reason is for our own people, the Tibetan people. Now, how many Tibetan people read Tibetan history? How many understand Tibetan history? If Tibetans don't read Tibetan history, no one else will. People have too many things to while away their time in this modern age. So therefore, I urge every single Tibetan to look at their own history, study their own history, and be in a position to be able to debate with others on historical status of Tibet. So just speaking about this is not enough. Uh, we also have to uh, bring support for the cause of Tibet through these efforts. And the fourth reason is we have independence advocates and middleware advocates within the Tibetan community. So none of us are seeking independence from each other, from each province to another. We are seeking independence from China, the independence advocates. If they are seeking independence, they are seeking independence from China. So why fight amongst ourselves? Whether you are a proponent of independence or whether you are a proponent of middleware approach, aim everything at Chinese government. There's no necessity to fight amongst ourselves to reduce our own strength. And we are only 130,000 Tibetans in exile. So if we remain disparate in many ways, then our strength will be weakened. And that's exactly what the Chinese government wants. So despite your position, with this uh, approach of the 16th cabinet, we believe that even advocates of different uh, positions can come together and work because the common cause of the immediate situation inside Tibet is the same, even though it may differ in the longer term.
But then we also have to learn to be pragmatic and see how Tibet can be resolved, how uh, Sino-Tibet conflict can be resolved, and how Tibetan people can be saved, how our culture can be saved, how our religion can be saved, and language can be saved. So that is why uh, it's not enough just to talk about these things. So in the last uh, one year, we have managed to uh, convince our friends in the United States Congress to uh, organize uh, an expert's testimony on the historical status of Tibet, which we did on June 23rd last year. And uh, based on that document, a bill has also been moved in both the Senate and the House in the United States government uh, to uh, that specifies on how to counter China's false narrative on Tibetan, Tibet's history and uh, to recognize Tibet as an unresolved conflict. And I believe this will give strength to our uh, fight for freedom. Then the second part was the uh, upgradation of the information management system. So information gathering has become much more difficult because there are less number of people coming from Tibet since 2008. So in 2010, we had 2020, we had only five people from Tibet. In 2021, only 10 people. 2022, only four people. 2023, as we speak, um, only about a dozen people have managed to come from inside Tibet. So that also affects our communication. Uh, the other reasons why is also because, because of the border war, India-China border war, WeChat has been banned in uh, uh, in India, because of the trade war between U.S. and China, WeChat has been banned. That is the only application the Tibetans inside Tibet can use. Because China has banned Facebook, Twitter, Telegram, all other social media apps to be used inside China and in Tibet. So uh, uh, that those these also affects our communication. But despite despite all these difficulties, we are not uh, we are not just sitting idle. We are resorting to all kind of conventional means and also modern means of information gathering. And this activity is very, very important. Uh, we have to understand the reality of the situation uh, inside Tibet and inform the international community accordingly. Otherwise, we would also be considered as lying to the international community, just as the Chinese have been doing all the time. There is no difference. So any information that the Central Tibetan Administration comes out with has to be based on facts and uh, uh, on-the-ground information. So to prepare this, uh, to, to uh, make good this uh, information management system, the information that comes from uh, Tibet uh, and in China uh, through open sources and through various other sources uh, needs to be managed. And before we analyze uh, uh, all the incoming news every day or every week, uh, it's important for the Tibet Policy Institute to prepare uh, good presentations or research papers on the past activities or policies and programs of the Chinese government on different aspects of Tibetan life whether it is to do with language, culture, religion, way of life, uh, ecology or environment or any other uh, matters that concerns uh, the plight of the Tibetans. Um, we have to study the historical background and Im its impacts, change in policies and consequences. So those, if you research well once, and that could be an established presentation. and the, 
everyday news that comes out of Tibet can be an addition or could be an evidence for the ask that we are, com that we are uh, requesting governments to take up. So once that is done, then the DI, Department of Information International Relations should be in a good position to disseminate all the information through the uh, uh, channels that we already have through the offices of Tibet, through the Tibet support groups, through the VTAC members, and through the parliamentary groups for Tibet. And to do that, uh, we have to uh, strengthen the uh, uh, network of information uh, dissemination system, and that is being developed by the uh, Department of Information and International Relations. So these two areas are the key areas when we, when it comes to resolving the Sino-Tibet conflict. Uh, one is uh, reopening uh, the uh, Sino-Tibet uh, dialogue. Under that comes the uh, restructuring of the committee, uh, reaching out to the Chinese government for resumption of dialogue, and then inter international advocacy for recognition of Tibet's historical status to gain appraisal for the uh, middle way policy. And then the second part of this uh, section is the upgradation of uh, information manage management system and uh, fine-tuning the information dissemination program. Uh, so under this, uh, of course, there are programs for Tibetans, which includes the voluntary Tibet advocacy group. The 16th cabinet has come out with this platform for every single Tibetan to come on a common platform to work on the course of Tibet. So in future, nobody can tell us that the, there was no platform. I wanted to do something, but there was no platform for me to do anything. The platform is very much there. Now, how much you want to take part in that or not is your decision. So as a Tibetan and uh, kinding the, uh, facing the kind of challenges that uh, we are facing, uh, getting the, uh, the, the community co uh, compact communities getting dispersed and then Tibetans being relocated to different countries around the world is definitely quite a challenge. But the opportunities also, because of the dispersed uh, Tibetan population, and these Tibetan population also having adopted citizenship of other countries have the right to vote and also the right to request their representatives to represent their case. Um, so this opportunity cannot be missed. And it is a very important platform that we have created, which we intend to nurture. There will be many more uh, youth forum meetings, regional meetings, international meetings, where you'll be taking part and take the lead in uh, in the uh, resolution of the Sino-Tibet conflict in the future if it is not resolved during our lifetime or our time. Um, this is the second part.